this should be a pretty cool session. And um, let me explain what we're going to do. We're going to we'll we'll talk a little bit about uh, Hollywood Content Lake and, and what what these folks are doing in uh, media workflows with AWS. Um, and we're going to have a really interesting conversation with Warner Brothers and Astro Malaysia. Astro, for those of you who are, are Western Hemisphere based, is one of the largest broadcasters in Southeast Asia. So we have uh, Warner Brothers, a studio, and, and their take on how what's important in, in using the cloud. And we have the broadcast perspective, slightly different uh, industries. And um, um, we're going to give you enough slides to, to sort of bring you up to speed on where they're at. And what's interesting about their journey is that uh, uh, they're both uh, sort of mid-journey, right, in, in the process of still working out some things, but have already made quite a bit of progress on architecting. And so it should make for a great conversation. Um, and with a small audience like this, I think we can have interactive Q&A. We'll, it's a little hard to see hands, but um, we'll, we'll try to catch those. And uh, the last third of the session, we were just going to sit and do kind of panel discussion. And again, we can, we can interrupt that with Q&A if, if you guys are... Uh, have questions uh, about architecture. All right, so um, uh, I'm Mike Davis, and uh, I'm on the storage business development team up in Seattle, and I connect pretty tightly into the Glacier and the S3 teams. Uh, and my focus tends to be on large-scale archive. And so I'm going to kick it off, and I'll let these gentlemen introduce themselves um, uh, when they get up. And uh, what I want to talk about is sort of the when we go out, we've, we've, we've had uh, notable customers like uh, Fox Pictures and Discovery Channel and Turner and Wazi Digital and Fox Sports and uh, uh, you know, companies of this magnitude moving their, both their workflows and their archives, their media archives into AWS, kind of distilling out what are the reasons they give us for moving to the cloud. And, and it, we can kind of break it down this way. We can say, hey, we're observing all these new opportunities out there. We see it in, our, you know, in these competitive threats. Um, we see it in different consumption patterns in the market. Okay, that's point one. Um, but, but, and the but is, it's very hard for me to turn and react to those market opportunities as a traditional media firm. Uh, and there's a couple things that jump out. Number one, I have a big archive but I don't have enough metadata on that stuff to really get utility out of my assets. Okay, and that metadata may be speech to text, it may be facial recognition, it may be tagging if you're a sports uh, uh, league and, and you wanna tag uh, plays and things like that. Um, the other problem is more infrastructure related where you have a lot of traditional infrastructure that's kind of rolled together over time and you have silos of content. Uh, and um, these represent kind of roadblocks to consolidating into a single view of assets. And then, and then finally, there's the, the kind of traditional bare metal serial workflows, people pushing carts with tapes on them down the hallway, um, and, uh, and tape-based storage. And there's this sort of this paradox of tape where as your asset collection gets big, it's even harder and harder to, to enrich in that metadata and to get utility out of those assets. And um, I've, I've heard the example multiple times where, hey, our storage tech silo filled, reached the limit of 5,300 LTO tapes, and now we just rotate them out and put them on a shelf or send them to Iron Mountain. So it's, it's, it's even worse. You're sort of abandoning those assets in a way. And, and, and we know that's not doing anything to serve the business going forward when we need, we're looking for more agility. So, so how do we 
kind of quantify the benefits of moving to the cloud. Well, there's a lot of conventional things we can think about. Uh, uh, reliability, that's durability and availability. Uh, with our economies of scale and our ability to, to, to create very high levels of reliability, we arguably can, can keep your, your data safer and more secure and more highly available than you could in a traditional data center environment. Um, our ability to scale uh, in a limitless fashion, um, our ability to have a very uh, strict and continuing to evolve a kind of a security toolkit for you. Okay, strict is the wrong word, but a diverse and powerful toolkit for maintaining security for your assets. Um, cost, so we, up to now, we would say, hey, we're kind of at par with the cost of buying and, and scaling and maintaining a tape library in your data center. That would be Glacier. But if you saw the announcement this morning, Deep Archive is coming out at one quarter of the price of the Glacier that you knew before. And so now it's not just about being the same price as a tape library, but even the same price as tapes on a shelf in a vaulting service like an Iron Mountain or something like that. Uh, and that's really the goal. Is that all that data that's cold and not doing anyone uh, any help by being in a vault should be brought forward and, and do what we can to get a, a value from those assets. Okay. But I kind of, you know, these are not necessarily arguments for moving to the cloud. These are almost like table stakes things. It's got to be elite, equivalent reliability. It's got to be equal or lower cost than what I have today. What we've kind of learned over the course of time is the things that are really important to the customers in migrating to AWS are these, are these things that relate it to agility, global footprint. Okay, I, I can't think about being siloed to North America anymore. Um, the ability to automate workflows using serverless, uh, things like Lambda and so forth. Uh, the ability to take my legacy archives and normalize them to a new packaging format or a new codec. Uh, the ability to augment the metadata and, and enrich in the, the cataloging that I have today. These are what I consider to be sort of top line value propositions. These are the reasons that your CIO, COO say, yeah, uh, I, now I see the leverage to the business. And so I, using the magic of PowerPoint, uh, top line, bottom line benefits, both are important. Um, the bottom line things are the things you got to have in place to make the move. The top line things are the things that you use to justify moving your media asset management, your archives, your workflows to the cloud. Okay, so. Um, so as a result, we have lots of uh, very interesting customers uh, using us for various parts of the workflow today, including archive. And we're going to focus more on the archive and the media asset management pieces today. That's sort of the, sort of the core theme of, of what Warner and Astro are, are going to talk about here. Um, and, um, and, and I'll close my section by saying one of the other things that we've learned in the process of migrating some of these very large customers to the cloud is, is the act of moving 20 or 30 petabytes of assets to the cloud is not just a plumbing problem. When I say plumbing, I mean, how do I get bits from point A to point B? It turns out to be a very complicated project. And it starts with, how do I get stuff out of your existing archive and optimize the egress from there? How do I read from tapes? How do I decode proprietary tape formats into something that I can use going forward? How do I extract metadata from my legacy MAM? Um, so these are sort of exporting from the, from the legacy system. Now, when those assets are in flight and moving into an AWS environment, that's the time to look at doing things like creating new proxies, uh, extracting more metadata, 
before it goes sort of cold down into Glacier, right? And so we've created, and we actually, we've had some separate sessions on this, on this week, a fully serverless uh, media migration pipeline. So it's all using step functions in Lambda. Uh, it starts with the media asset registry, which is do an MD5, create a UUID, um, uh, automatic proxy generation using media convert uh, to your specifications. Uh, and then triggering our analytics pipeline, which is facial recognition, speech to text. We build those indexes. We, we're creating a ton of new metadata for you. So now we have to put it in some place where we can persist that data. That's DynamoDB and Elasticsearch. And then we need to package it up for your MAM. Uh, and, uh, and, and so we have sort of a metadata exchange. Uh, uh, I won't call it a standard, but we're working with the MAM vendors on how they want to take that in, if it's JSON or XML. And, so these are some of the complexities of, of the migration that really need to be thought about up front. Um, and, and then we start to talk about, well, what are the adjacent wins for you guys? So, okay, besides putting the, the archive in, how do we run Aspera in the cloud and do uh, data transfers directly uh, into the S3 bucket, for example? Or how do we do automated packaging and distribution from your bucket? Um, and then, of course, all the, all the questions around how do you want to assure DR um, I, I think David's going to mention the term fixity, which is important for sort of long-term preservationists. Um, how do you manage costs using lifecycle? So there's this, a whole set of best practices around just the operationalizing of that archive. So this is all uh, really should be thought about up front in a, in a methodical planned migration. And, and nowhere in here am I evangelizing snowballs. Right. That's the choice of Snowball or Direct, those are sort of details of implementation that come out after examining all these issues. So, um, um, uh, so we're getting much better at taking this view end to end and kind of prescribing based on your requirements, where you want to go, how fast, you, you know, what are the forcing functions, uh, what are the requirements for metadata uh, augmentation, and helping you build a plan around this. Um, so, so I'll stop there, and uh, I want to turn it over now to Aik Chong, who is the CTO of Astro Malaysia. And he's going to walk through where they are and, and what their architecture looks like. OK? Thank you. Thanks. Can you all hear me? Thanks for having me here. So maybe just a quick intro of Astro. Uh, we are the largest media company in Malaysia and Southeast Asia. Uh, we have interests across pay TV, content production. We are the largest 3D operators in Malaysia. Uh, we have e-commerce, home shopping business, and a number of core digital products as well. So from pay TV perspective, we are in 76% of the homes. But Malaysia is not a big country, so we have 7 million homes in Malaysia. So we are in 5.6 million homes in Malaysia, serving 20 over million individuals in Malaysia. Uh, from radio perspective, we reach about 15, 16 million listeners on a weekly basis. And on digital products, we get about 20 million monthly unique visitors to the different core digital products we have. And one of the key areas that we have is content production. So we produce about 13,000 hours of local vernacular content per annum. And that's how we differentiate ourselves compared to other international competitors. So on our platform, I would say about 75% of the viewing hours are actually on our own locally produced content compared to the licensed content. Um, from pay TV perspective, let me just do a quick video intro of the facility we have before I go in a bit about what we have done in terms of archiving project. 
Oh, okay. I don't know if I can put it. Nope, it was tough to. You can sing and dance, can't you? <laughs> There's a lovely soundtrack. Yeah. There's no voiceover, don't worry. And this amazing piece of I, hardware. I could watch those tape robotics go back and forth all day long. It's like watching a Zamboni at the <laughs> at the ice skating rink. It's like it just wants to crash into something. You, know? you should see the old ones in the old days that used to spin around on circles. Now your control room. Look, how many channels do you monitor? In yes, about two hundred channels. Two hundred channels. That was very impressive. So the, the castle-looking building was our main camp, is our main campus, and then we have a second site in a place which is about 20 kilometers away. So basically, we, we distribute our load equally across both sides. So both sides are hot all the time, and it caters for 50% of the service. And obviously, why we have split, we have split the service also because of disaster recovery. Um, over the last two, three years, we have been busy upgrading the legacy technology infrastructure across both the facilities, which were put in place, I mean, from technology perspective, those were put in place like more than 10 years ago. And basically looking at how could we leverage on modern technology to improve operational efficiencies, uh, scalability, reliability, and also what is more important is making sure we can get our content to our customers as fast as possible. Um, both the sites, all the content related processes are being managed through a media asset management system. And basically, this MEM system also controls and manages how content is being archived into the data tape library and also how content is being mirrored across both sides. We have two storage tank SL8500 libraries, one at each site. Uh, and currently, we have about, in total, because we have been in operations for the last 23 years, we have about 600,000 hours of unique content being stored in the archive. And on an annual basis, we are adding about 60,000 hours of new content. So you can imagine the, the, it has been quite a challenge to be able to cope with the growth of the content that we have. <coughs> this is quite a busy slide. I'll, I'll just cover a few main points. Um, our data tape library was installed in 2006. So it's actually quite an old uh, systems and we do face quite a bit of challenges from day-to-day -day perspectives. So if I look at the last 12 months, easily would have we would have experienced like eight uh, tape snaps over the last 12 months, and that equals to if you look at total number of hours of content, that's about 500 hours of content that we lost because of uh, the, the tapes. But fortunately, because we mirror our content 100% across both sides, we are able to recover from the other side. But it's, you can imagine it's a very expensive uh, activity to try to mirror content 100% across both sides. Uh, robotic arm as well, uh, it's, sometimes it's, we also struggle to get replacement part. There was once it took us two days before we could even get hold of the replacement part. Uh, the second challenge we have is in terms of SLA, especially uh, we are not able to commit to SLA to turn around a piece of content quickly from getting it out from the archive and getting it either to our pay TV channels or onto our video on demand library. And at times when during certain occasions, sometimes it could take like 
up to 24 hours before we could actually retrieve a piece of content out from the robotic library. Um, so, and from ongoing maintenance perspective, it has been quite challenging and also expensive as well for us to continuously uh, trying to keep up to the LTO uh, technology enhancements. So if you look at LTO currently, it's, we are at LTO 8 right now, but if you look at in our library, currently we have a mix of between LTO 4 and LTO 5 tapes, and we have not really taken a decision to make sure we are up to date because of the various investment concerns and also the challenges we face with the robotic library. And obviously with 20 petabyte of content, uh, there's scalability issues as well. And like uh, what Mike mentioned just now, so both our libraries are actually full and then we ended up externalizing 6,000 data tapes sitting on the shelf. So you can imagine the additional manual works and productivity issues that brings to the entire operations. And in fact, 6,000 tapes is as good as a new library. Um, the last couple, I mean, since last year, we've been looking at options. Do we expand the data tape library or should we do something different than what we've been doing? And at, finally, we decided to move everything to Glazier, but obviously with us proving the business case and making sure there's valid business case before we decide on the move. Uh, in fact, we started the migration since late August, and this is a process that's going to take place over um, the next six, seven months, and we are targeting for that to be completed by end of March next year. So with the new architecture, what we are looking at, there are four, five key areas that we're focusing on. First is to make sure we really improve the customer experience, to make sure we can actually get the content out to our customers uh, as fast as possible. And to make sure we are really the first one who add the content on our channel compared to our competitors. Secondly, with the move, we are also looking at how do we unify and simplify the current complicated and very complex multi-site infrastructure. And also looking at with that, how could we minimize or reduce the number of points of failures we can we get from the current system. Um, thirdly, obviously, from scalability perspective, from reliability perspective, with the move to Glazier, those will be addressed compared to the current storage tech library that we have. And obviously, cost is also an important factor as well. And the aim is for us to move away from the traditional upfront capital intensive approach to pay as you use where we only pay for what we need rather than investing upfront or sometimes over investing because we are worried and that we may not be able to cater for the load that we put in peak capacity just to try to cater for what we've estimated. Hey, you mentioned, uh, I was gonna ask about your migration, just to clarify, are, are you uh, using the DX, the Direct Connect uh, networking to move all the content? Yep. Is that the plan? Okay, yep. all right. So, so if you look at, previously, we, we already have a Direct Connect link from, K, from Kuala Lumpur to Singapore directly, because at that time, AWS doesn't have a port in Malaysia yet. So that link is still active, and then uh, about two months back, we put in a new link connecting both the sites, each one having a 20 gig pipe connecting both the sites to the AWS pop in KL. And basically with the 20 gig link from each site, the, the aim is we, we want to expedite the migration as fast as possible. And thus we, that's why we are able to estimate that um, we will be able to complete the entire migration within uh, a six, seven months period. And if you look at this diagram, so 
we have 20 gigs linked from each side to the AWS pop and at the same time because these are precious content we also want to make sure in the migration process if something happened to the link because sometimes the fiber could be chopped because someone is digging the route for construction and thus we are still keeping the, the direct connect link to Singapore as well as a backup and the plan is once all of this all the contents migrated away from the archive to Glazier then we will be shutting down the SL8500 libraries across both sites uh, and this entire process is actually is being managed by the media asset management system we have. So we have added a new Glazier adapter to the media asset management system that's actually driving the entire migration process. How many tape heads do you have in your tape libraries? I mean, how much uh, you're getting pretty aggressive throughput in a six seven month run? Are you are you going to continue to ingest into your tape archives or uh, um, are you going to start ingesting directly and then we migrate? will be we will start ingesting directly. In fact, it will go into our production storage first in the diagram, and then from there, then it will be moved to Glazier directly mm -hmm. rather than going to the. Um, and so the tape archives tank. can be turned 100% to egress, right. which is yep. one of the ways to get the throughput up. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Are there, uh, can you go back? Are there any questions from the audience on, on what he's showing here and, and sort of the, the cloud state of their. So, so, oh, you go ahead. <laughs> so, so for, for Astro, besides providing our service through direct to home through satellite, we also have OTT service as well. So basically, we, we, we also send our linear channel and also individual content to the AWS cloud. And Elemental is a service we use over there to transcode and to convert the linear channel and the individual file for our OTT service. And Elemental was a company that AWS acquired uh, several years back and, and uh, has been a long time producer of on-prem uh, encoding systems for broadcast and film and so forth. So that's their, that's their core, but we have multiple Elemental services for transcode, for packaging, and, and for playout type of use cases. Uh, question here? Yeah. Come again, sorry. Yeah. So, so yeah. So the the media asset management system is actually doing all the integrity check and is is also checking the checksum as well, whatever that comes out from data tape every, and also when it moves into Glazier, so that's being handled by the media asset management system. Can you share which you're using? Uh, we're using uh, product called MediaFlex from uh, TMD. Telemedia Dynamics. Any other question, or I move on to the next slide. So, from cost perspective, obviously, for me to be able to persuade the CFO that this is something worth doing, so we we need to show that. I mean, bottom line perspective, there it's going to be cost saving. So we set ourselves over five years period, at least we want to be able to achieve a twenty percent cost savings over five years period. And I think what is key is to make sure, besides besides taking cons into consideration the AWS related cost. Uh, for the total TCO calculation, we need to include also the additional bandwidth we need to put in and also um, the migration effort uh, and potentially we may need to engage external party to assist us. Uh, there's also software licensing and also parallel run costs as well because while the migration is going on, I need to continue to maintain the SL8500 libraries as well as the 
HSM, the software system that's managing the library, and all those are actually costing us money. So that's why we, uh, we, try, we are trying our best to make sure we can get it across as fast as possible. Then we could shut down both the library and also the archive management system. In terms of what's coming after migrating the content into cloud, so the way I look at it is obviously our operation engineers will need will move away from the manual mundane uh, task of maintaining and keeping track of even the data tapes, right? And but we'll be moving more and more into trying to automate as much as possible the content-related process. While currently it has been automated to a certain extent, but definitely there's a lot more we could do leveraging on the various services available in the cloud, whether it's native AWS services or it could be third-party services that is available in the AWS ecosystem. Uh, in fact, we have started looking at and, and doing POC, proof of concept, on applying AI machine learning on some of the more human-intensive stuff that we are currently doing. Uh, for example, like subtitling, both from speech to text and also text to text, translating from one language to another language. Uh, we are exploring uh, metadata generation of selected content together with a third-party partner. Uh, and we are also looking at how we could leverage on, for example, the Amazon recognition service to try to automate content censorship. In Malaysia, we have quite a strict content censorship rules. So for example, on our turnaround channels, we have about close to about 100, over, 100 channels uh, that we uh, re receive from external providers and then we actually put it on a one minute to an hour of delay that we actually have a team of 300 people working 24 by 7 chopping up content either stitching content together or inserting content to make sure it looks good uh, that's and that's a lot of operations involved right and but I think but that's still a new area that we are still exploring and we have not seen successful outcome from the experiment we've been doing uh, from subtitling perspective, we are having some good successes. So by middle of December, we will actually be uh, automating at least the translation service from one language to another <coughs> language. So we are covering three different languages between English, uh, Chinese, and Bahasa Malaysia, which is a national language in Malaysia, right? And I'm actually quite excited with the migration because we could do a lot more on the content that we have. And the ultimate aim we have Hopefully, in three to five years' time, uh, the plan is to have at least 80% of the broadcast infrastructure to be fully operation, op operation, operating from the cloud, rather than currently that we have two massive broadcast centers to cater for our uh, media-related services. That's it. David, it's your turn. So that was great. Um, Ek Chong did such a nice job talking about um, migrations and sort of the sort of mechanics of that that I'm gonna I'm gonna spend a little bit of time on something that's a little more esoteric um, and, and you know, kind of interesting for for some folks. So uh, I'm David Sag. I'm the vice president of content architecture and engineering for Warner Brothers. Um, so I look after a variety of different content related uh, systems and processes and media engineering uh, activities uh, for the studio. Um, so just real quickly, in case there was three people in the or are three people in the room that don't know who Warner Brothers is, um, uh, today WB is performing at the top of our game. 
We're leading in major areas of entertainment. We're setting records at the box office with recent hits like Crazy Rich Asians. We've been number, the number one TV studio uh, for the last nine seasons. Uh, we've also built an amazing gaming uh, company through acquisition over the last several years that's generating more than a billion dollars in revenue just last year. So it's a, it's a, big, uh, it's a big thing for us. Um, it's also home, WB's also home to some of the world's biggest brands, including my personal favorite, Harry Potter. Um, it's one of those things I read to my kids when they were growing up. It's a great, uh, it's a great brand. Uh, we've also got DC Comics, The Wizarding World, uh, Middle Earth Family, among others that you see on the slide. So we're gonna talk a little bit about the 100-year challenge um, and what, that's, what that means to us, to, to the studios. So for many companies, the data they create supports their business and the creation of their products. For example, an autom automotive manufacturing company. Uh, for other companies, it can be argued that, the, that most of the data they create is their business, but it's not their product. For content creation companies, the data we create is our business and it is our product. And so uh, for that reason, we tend to think of term in the terms of preserving things for 100 years uh, or more. Uh, and and that's, that's an interesting problem. We know how to, we know how to make film, film in cans exist or last or work for over 100 years. It's a, it's a well understood process that's both uh, tested as well as you know, reality has proven that it works. Unfortunately, nobody really knows how to make digital collections of digital bits last that long. Um, and more importantly, last that long in a predictable and low effort manner. Right? We can all stand around and migrate LTO 5 to 6 and 6 to 7 and 7 for the rest of our natural lives. Um, but it doesn't really sound like a great time. Um, so what we really need is the Superman Fortress of Solitude Knowledge Crystal. If you know anybody that has one of those, let us know. Um, so while preserving those bits for all eternity is certainly the uh, top of mind, it's not really the only consideration for us. Um, we, like many companies, categorize threats to our assets. And, and we, we, we think about things like bit rot and media failure and e-impulses and loss of tribal knowledge and disease and war and zombies, and it just kind of goes on. Um, do you have zombies on that spreadsheet? If you do, I want to see it. <laughs> you can, if you can read that little tiny spreadsheet behind, then you know, maybe it's on there. Uh, but we are, we are an entertainment company, so you gotta figure yeah. there's zombies in there somewhere, right? Yeah. Eat your own dog um, and if not, I'm sure that Brad and I can make sure that they get added. Okay. Um, so uh, each of those things are assessed um, by probability, with, against probability and impact, and then their solution for. So, but digital content archives have a special problem in that it is important to ensure that all the bits are always present and that, we, and that we're able to repair or replace them uh, if they're damaged or missing very quickly. Technology such as uh, remote replication can overwrite stuff, overwrite good files with bad if they're not managed property, properly. Excuse me. Um, the insurance, or this insurance of bit status called fixity. Uh, Mike mentioned it a second ago. Um, and preservation technologists are, sorry, fixated on it. Um, it's true. 
It's true, among other problems. Fixity helps us solve for threats like media failure and bit rot. Um, it also gives us a good understanding of the state uh, of our assets at any given time. Fixity can be managed via checksums, uh, and it usually is, uh, and can be applied at ingest if the fixity is, of, is known for the file. So if I know what the checksum for the file is when I get it, I can, uh, I can ingest and check against, right? Uh, I can also manage it throughout the life cycle by running regular checks, uh, regular checksum uh, checks, and I can uh, also do it during any event, like a copy, a file copy, or a, a file move. Um, so this is an interesting quote. I'm going to read this. Um, it, just because I think it explains the concept well. It's from the, dis, there's actually, this, there actually is such a thing if you're not a preservationist, now, now you know. Um, the Digital Preservation Handbook as presented by the dis, Digital Preservation Coalition. Uh, Fixity doesn't just apply to files, but to any digital object that has a series of bits inside it where that bit stream needs to be kept intact with the knowledge that it hasn't changed. Fixity could be applied to images or video inside an audiovisual object, to individual files within a zip to metadata inside an XML structure, to records in a database, or to objects in an object store. So this is fixity. Right? You learn more about fixity than you ever thought you wanted to know. So every bit's important, and it's not enough to just have 11 nines. You know, Amazon and, and, and AWS and, and others like to talk about the number of nines they can give us of durability, right? That's not enough. Those bits have to be kept safe, even losing one bit in a file is a problem, because once they're gone, there's nothing we can do about it. So our current standards require us to check fixity on a regular basis, so that can be monthly, it can be quarterly, it's certainly, it's certainly more than, uh, one, you know, at least once a year, right? Um, oftentimes more than that. So there's a, you know, an interesting problem, is that cloud providers like AWS provide tools for checking fixity at time of file upload, file download. Um, and Fixity inside their infrastructure, it turns out, is, is verified regularly uh, by the tooling that they provide. Um, but there's no way for me to access that data today. There's no way for me to know. And so when you're talking with a preservationist that wants to understand the state of their asset archive, they want to understand what the Fixity status for a given asset is across the, the thing. When was it checked the last time? Uh, what type of check was performed? What was the status? What happened if, it, if there was a problem? That, that's what they, that what they want to know. So uh, AWS and, and other cloud providers have features in their pipe, uh, feature requests in their pipeline to add that sort of visibility to that fixity information, uh, which we want to then incorporate into our archive uh, to help us manage that, that asset through its 100-plus year life cycle. Uh, and it turns out it's important to, to other folks that are really trying to manage that for that really long-term um, thing. And so it's... This data is really, really important for any serious digital archive because the alternative is to deploy separate compute processes to validate fixity, and that's expensive. I got to roll compute, I got to read every bit, I have to rehydrate every bit off of Glacier or Deep, or, or deep Archive. I have to read those bits, I have to check some of them, and then I have to trunk them and move on. And, and that's really just improbable from a cost perspective across uh, a, a multi-petabyte archive. So, how do we manage this today? Right now, we've got redundant, geographically dispersed uh, co-location co sites, so we're, we're fully terrestrial. Um, think of Ek Chong's uh, diagram, it's 
similar SL8500 tape libraries, a uh, mix of T10K and LTO tapes. Um, we perform monthly, quarterly, and biannual or biannual fixity checks of every bit in those tape library uh, in those tape libraries. We, if we find a bad bit, we re we replace from a uh, from a good copy and we retire that tape. That tape goes away; it's gone. Uh, we also age tapes out, so the tapes don't exist in the library longer than a certain period of time. It's defined by um, our understanding over the course of the years of the aging cycle of LTO tapes. They don't last forever. Typically, we're pulling stuff out at, uh, at least every three years. So a tape is literally just copied off and erased, even if it's still good, every three years. And as you might expect, the usual challenges are addressed by moving to the cloud. So the usual challenges exist as well. And you know, Aik Chong talked about this as well. Um, in particular, there's real costs for things like egress and storage, but there's also those perceived costs, um, costs of compute, the visible versus the hidden cost. Um, I'm sure many of us uh, have been in those conversations about how the tape library is free because it's a sunk capital cost, and there's real costs for me to run compute and pay for storage every month. Um, and so there's um, some real issues with that. And there's perpetually in our industry, though it's getting better and better and better, is uh, the question of security. How secure is it, right? And each of those issues can be managed. Uh, the the, the cost forward, one, uh, I'm sorry, one? huh? Can you click forward one? I think you're on the... Nope. Oh, okay, good. Oh, you, make sure. No, you're right, I am, sorry. Thank you. Um, realistic TCO calculations are really important, right? So making sure that you're actually looking at the total cost of ownership for that archive. Um, we are in a particular scenario right now where our, you know, parts of our archive are actually managed by a vendor, and so that, that makes it uh, an even a, a step more obscure to us what the actual TCO is on the, um, on the actual uh, library itself. Another thing that's been really interesting to watch inside of a 100-year-old company is the updating of the accounting methods. Right? So in very old companies, uh, managing sort of monthly cost and OPEX against managing capital spend that's seen as, seen as a very sort of um, free money versus not um, is, a, is a real big problem. So the finance folks have been working pretty diligently uh, inside of our organization to get much better at that, and they've, they've made some big strides. And while security issues are real, you know, those of us that are, that are working to move stuff into the public cloud know that they can be addressed with smart policies and smart implementation. Um, the cloud is really great for getting stuff done really quickly. Uh, it's also really great for doing stupid things really quickly. So you can fail really fast in a pretty, pretty amazing way if you don't do things uh, uh, smartly. So what does it look like for, uh, for us today? Uh, this is a really high level view of, of what we're doing now. So we've got lots of vendors that are sending content into our archive. Um, companies like, uh, well, most studios in general, uh, use a lot of outsourced vendors uh, for this kind of thing, uh, for the sort of preparation of content for archive. Um, and that comes in through an ingest process and then there's a replication that's managed, both at the storage level as well as at the dam level. And that's, a com that's actually a complex process. It's actually pretty tough. Um, to, to get and keep right. But the real killers here are, are the lack of elasticity uh, and the long enhancement cycles. Um, both classic cloud, public cloud advantages, right? Um, it's, simple, it's simply really, really difficult to scale up or down. It just is. 
Um, I got a I got a big storage uh, setup. I got a bunch of tape libraries. I need more storage. I mean, need more tape libraries. That's a that's a long cycle for me to get through. Classic sort of cloud arguments, right? So this is what makes the move to cloud so compelling. So we've been working on a cloud-based solution, and this is this is a variation of what um, this might be might be iteration 376. Um, that that we're working on delivering. We're actually, uh, as Mike said, we're sort of mid-flight on this on this journey. Um, our preservation policies strongly encourage. I'll use those words purposely. Strongly encourage vendor diversity. Right? They they really want us to be vendor diverse, um, and I, you know it makes sense. Um, so we're likely to replicate a copy somewhere else, somewhere besides uh, besides AWS. But that's represented on this diagram by colocation one. Um, that said, uh, it could be a terrestrial facility, might be. Uh, it could be another cloud, or could, depending on the scenario, might just be another region within AWS. Uh, it's, it's still being discussed with our uh, preservation folks. Um, the, repl the replication strategy is still being designed, but you'll notice in front of this stack, there's actually a, um, a services layer that we're building that's actually standardizing um, a lot of our processes for intake and output. Um, one second. Um, it's going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting exercise because part of part of our design ethic has us actually removing uh, the dam or moving this up above the dam, the replication strategy, not having it be a dam driven strategy. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of them are relatively clear. Sort of uh, you know, getting to a scenario where we've created services that are decoupled is is, is compelling for us and, and sort of pulling things out of a monolithic uh, dam application uh, is very is very interesting to us um, we'll certainly manage our elasticity our elasticity concerns in this in this scenario with you know using cloud resources so that means the intake comes in through the cloud that we burst up slow down whatever we need to do um, egress is certainly a concern in this model um, but there's lots of tools to help us manage that and, and understand and, and, and deal with those costs, direct connects, um, you know, and other tools that are available. Um, details on this are, re are, are still being hammered out, as you can tell. Um, but we're really excited about making this change and getting this thing up in the cloud so that we can start doing a lot of the stuff that I Chong laid out in the last slide of his deck. Um, I think all of us are trying to figure out how to better leverage our assets. Um, and this is a big step for us to get to that place. So um, that's that. Questions? Effectively, yeah. Um, it was being managed, or it is being managed as a, um, a tape library level action, so that the NHSM is managing it, um, the actual data replication, and then there's a data, there's a data replication that happens in the, in the dam as well. And by the way, folks, we're going to do a little bit of a panel discussion here, so the session's uh, not wrapping up just yet. That's exactly the point. Yeah, I mean, in our case, we are using the single 
MAM system to manage, whether it's on-premise or in right. the cloud. Right. And our challenge as a studio is that we have, uh, we don't have the benefit of having a single pool of assets. So I have assets that exist across multiple vendors, multiple systems uh, in the cloud, not in the cloud, uh, behind endpoints, not behind endpoints, um, because as a, as a company that's been uh, you know, leveraging vendors for the creation of materials for a very, very long time. We have a you know incredible swath of materials around the around the world, and so we're actually taking it up a layer above that, because the there isn't really a dam that's that's that that we're excited about using that does that direct specific um, mapping of assets across that broad spectrum. Sure. No, it's across it's across the spectrum, I and mean, we are uh, you know as I said we have a billion dollar a year game company, right? And so we're looking you know ultimately we're looking at every kind of asset that we create. Um, we 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 create millions upon millions of uh, advertising and publicity materials around every thing that we release every year, um, and so those materials are part of it as well as game builds and other things like that. So. In Astro's case, we have a different asset management system that's managing the digital assets. So, and we are still in the review process to look at should we consolidate everything, and then which will be the right solution to do that across both digital asset as well as the broadcast media. We're a couple other questions for Dave. Yeah. yeah. So we've, we've made a pretty big jump into serverless for anything new that we're building. Um, we're big, big fans of building, building Lambda. We're big fans of step functions. Um, and so a lot of the stuff that we're building now is, is Node and, and sitting in Lambda. Um, the obvious problem with asset management is the, the sort of run times uh, for a lot of these things. So checksumming, uh, Peter Jackson's 1.8 terabyte version of, of you know, his last film is, is a, you know, a little more than a 15 minute exercise. Uh, over in the right. Yeah, so on the world of films in the archive video, there's quite a light through the projector and you can see the, the bits, even the three strikes. What about protecting yourself from proprietary formats? Because then that checksum might be perfect, but the, there's compression and there's bit formats inside that. So what do you do? Open the XR DTX? So it's an, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting question. So my boss happens to be here. We've had this debate several times. Um, it is my assertion that 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 we shouldn't um, that we shouldn't convert to for the sake of converting because converting creates typically creates generational loss. So if I'm going to come out of a thing and go into a thing, um, I'm going to create generational loss in that scenario. Um, but there is a very strong argument that says that when you bring materials in, you should go to OpenEXR. It depends a, a lot on where you want to or or another open format. Uh, it depends a lot on where you want to take the hit. You want to take it now and do a convert and do that generational loss when you may or may, or may not need to actually solve for that problem for 20 years. Um, or, yeah, it, it, it has been, yeah, it is, you know. Right, but the reality of, of a lot of things is, is there's certain formats that have died on the vine very quickly, uh, but there's lots of formats that have been around forever and don't seem to ever want to die no matter how much we want them to. Question here? Yeah. I was just 
So this is, uh, this is a conversation that, that I, I literally had a day and a half ago or two days ago with, with Mike and a bunch of people from AWS. Um, it, it really is a requirement for us to be able to confirm that our bits are good. And so um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be important that the provider that provides the archive of storage for, for, for this archive is uh, the amount of storage for this archive is able to provide visibility. You know, I have, I have uh, you know, a strong understanding that uh, Amazon is doing that kind of work already. It's just a matter of them making that information available yeah. to us. Yeah, as a, so I can comment a little bit. I mean, as, as a provider of storage as a service, we traditionally would view that as housekeeping stuff that should be obscured from your view. Um, but we also have, for example, the U.S. National Archive, second generation archive system is all in AWS, digital libraries, folks like that that really, really care about having the transparency. And so we're, we do not have a, a feature definition or a schedule for anything in this area at this time, but we're having lots of conversations about what it might look like, perhaps in a phased fashion. So maybe step one is providing transparency to what we already do, and we already do fixity checks for bit rot against media or whatever we're using under the covers that we don't talk about. Uh, um, and then maybe further down the road would be things like on-demand fixity checking using your particular algorithm. I mean, we'll be listening to all of you if you have inputs um, on how to prioritize those things. Yeah, and from, and from you know, our point of view, just the uh, availability, if, if the fixity checking or, or the, you know, the, the, you know, the fixity checking is being done, Visibility to the to the output of that, whatever it happens to be, um, is is great. I, I firmly believe that there's enough movement of materials going on inside of the archive, you know, inside of the the AWS storage layer, and there's enough desire by Amazon to 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 do that and make sure that they're preserving bits correctly. That you know the work's getting done. It's just we need to see it. You know, we trust but verify, right? I mean, I mentioned our serverless media ingest solution that uses Lambda to calculate MD5. I mean, so we. We have ways of doing it at the solution level today for in the short term. But, right. um, but yeah. um, and, and I want to toss out a couple questions, and, and you guys can queue up more questions for us. Uh, um, a question I had for Ake Chong is, is since you've already, you're kind of further along the path, and you're already migrating data in, um, what were the biggest lessons learned? I mean, in hindsight, what, is there anything you would have done differently, or what thing jumped out at you as well? If we'd known this in advance, we might have. Uh, well, first it took us about nine months to build on the business case and also to de decide which design. And to be honest, there were a lot of back and forth with AWS when we were negotiating commercial and it took them a long time also. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I think, I think one of the key lessons learned was uh, while we have put in place a 20 gig pipe for each site and assuming based on that, we are able to get content across quickly. Uh, what we didn't check, or at least we should have done a small migration test just to make sure we test the entire end-to-end -end chain to make sure we know where are the potential speed bumps. Uh, because we do, we do face a bit of speed bumps where even though we have 20 gig pipe, we were having issues populating the whole 20 gig pipe. So there were fine tuning we need to do to the servers we use to transfer the content. Uh, there were tape drive performance issues, uh, and also even the 
the glazier drivers or the adapters that, that was developed by the MAM providers. So it took a bit of fine tuning for us to be able to increase the, the speed as well. So I think, I think it will be good, I think, for anyone who is going to be embarking on this, at least test it on a small scale that you know where are the potential speed bumps. And there could be some that you cannot overcome it, but then, then you start running additional parallel processes. So for example, we're trying to save money, we're trying to use a bunch of old servers that we have. So we ended up, instead of having a couple of that doing the work, so we added a few more so that you could, you could do parallel transfer. We've we've had some experience with things like this too, and and the thing that you know I, that you know, is, is alluding to is you know, it's kind of like kicking the can down the road. So I solved this problem. Okay, I got enough throughput off my tape library, but now now my disk isn't fast enough in order to, to intake and output materials. Okay, now I've done that, but my network layer is too. And it, it's just sort of chasing this yep. this can down the road, right? It's, uh, so the end to end test is great. It's a great suggestion. And one of my questions for David actually. Um, so you've obviously put a lot of thought into MAM software. There, in every one of these archive situations, we see uh, a, a media asset manager, and oftentimes we'll see an HSM, right? What is the software that's actually writing to the underlying tape library? And, and the question is sort of five-year vision. What does that industry look like? I mean, is there really a role for the traditional MAM and HSM? And if so, what is the thing that really matters most from, from those software layers? I think in this context, um, HSM solves, uh, in traditional systems, solves a very specific problem, which is the sort of obfuscation of the, of the file system from the overarching application. Um, it, it was a real big problem for a long time for asset management systems to be able to talk to every kind of file system. So um, uh, you know, not that long ago, object storage wasn't a thing. Um, it was a it was a thought, but it wasn't a thing. And the you know the the sort of answer to the HSM is the RESTful endpoint. Um, and and so I think it's an evolution. You 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 need less and less this this standardized hierarchical storage manager uh, interface that this tool can talk to when you can instead have it talk to a standardized RESTful interface. Uh, or something like a standardized RESTful interface. So um, the HSMs, I think, are, are they're, they're going to have a, a, a role for a long time because we're going to have POSIX file systems and tape libraries and other things that need to be obfuscated from the, the, the DAM software. Um, but this, this, like everything else, is moving in, in the direction of, of you know, standardized endpoints that are, that are developed against you know, currently the RESTful style. And you know, I think it becomes less and less important for HSMs to continue to exist in a lot of solutions because this is all at the end of the day is about acquiring and retaining bits, you know, and being able to get those things back back in the other direction, and, and that's not necessarily a requirement uh, uh, when you have appropriate endpoints for that. Yeah. I mean, similarly, like what I mentioned earlier, in our case, once we've fully migrated everything away from the storage tech library, we will be shutting down both the library and the HSM as well. Because the MAM have built, the MAM vendors have actually built a driver um, leveraging on the Glazier SDK directly that it could archive, it could retrieve content, it could perform right. checksum, all the necessary stuff that used to be done by a HSM system. Right. And as, as vendors like AWS continue to extend and standardize the interfaces that we work with, it gets easier and easier and easier to do that. 
Um, the, the, I think the, the S3 put announcement for Glacier was, was big, right? Yeah. You know, it's standardizing the way that you interface with Glacier through the S3 interface. Um, so you don't have to go to the Glacier interface anymore, which means we're collapsing down the way we interact with storage as far as AWS is concerned uh, to a smaller and smaller surface. That's right, yeah. Uh, question over here on this side, yeah. That's a, that's a great question. You want to, you want to take it? All right. Um, so we have a we have an ongoing debate about um, about that, and it's you know our preservation VP likes to talk about the eighty twenty rule. Um, when you get into um, making feature films, there's directors that will actually just leave the camera on all the time because you know it's free. Just leave it running, keep collecting bits, and so you end up in this in this scenario where you've got. 100,000 photographs that were taken by on-set photographers across the course of a nine-month production, and you know some some number that's approaching a bajillion hours of capture off of a cam, you know a multicam setup because they just left it running. Um, that's absolutely a thing. But we were just talking about this the other day. The 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 th th the introduction of things like deep archive make that less important because it's, it's closer now to being able to just put that thing on the shelf. Ideally, as a preservation, you should want to keep every piece of information that makes sense. Um, you, you, you want to, you, you know, the, it's hard to make a judgment about what's going to be good and what's, what's not. Um, you know, an interesting example of that in, the, in, in our world is the idea of um, uh, making calendars from Gone with the Wind. You know, a 200,000 frame film. There's only so many images, unique images in, in that film. Um, and so having additional material, set photography, other things like that, um, would make that, you know, gives that business more legs, right? You don't end up running out of interesting, interesting materials. I think we, we, we cater for both the broadcast uh, quality material as well as user-generated content. And at the end, it depends on the life cycle of them. I think for the, for the IPs that we generate on our own, so we take very good care of it. For IPs that we... Uh, license from third party obviously there's a life cycle for it and after right. a certain time then it gets purged and for user generated content we actually have an in-house build system that we manage those separately as well and basically both of them have their own life cycle management mm. okay. uh, question here yeah Um, so storing an encrypted DCP um, maybe likes, makes less sense than encrypting the, the DCP and then you know encrypting it on demand when you need to deliver it. Um, encryption process uh, it's it's actually it's actually another debate inside this inside the city about whether we should be saving encrypted DCPs or not. Um, you know, typically when we deliver, we'll, we'll, we'll look to we always want to look to do things like that, like re-encrypt those sorts of things if we need to, uh, in the long term. Right, we're not talking about in the window of delivery because, because for us, uh, content content delivers in windows really aggressively, and then it goes away until somebody gets a brilliant idea. But for me to to remake a DCP five years from now, it's pretty extraordinary, and it's usually for a new piece of content, right? Because DCP is not really an archival element; it's a servicing element, and so I don't I don't I can always remake DCPs. I can always re-encrypt DCPs, right?
So we actually manage today, we manage servicing assets differently than than archive assets. They're actually cons they're, they're discrete. Now there are cases where servicing assets are actually archive assets, assets. Um, but as you know, as a standard matter, we we're managing archive materials in in, in a way we're trying we're moving toward managing archive materials in a way that uh, lets us regenerate the servicing materials if we need to. Right? We we built some systems a number of years ago that moved us very very strongly into just in time servicing. Uh, and that was really successful for us, and so that model continues to stay. So we want to be in a position where we can have the master asset and regenerate if we need to uh, down the road. Because the reality of, of me again resurfacing a DCP down the road means that we're re-releasing a feature film somewhere in a theater, and that that's just not a thing that happens a lot. Okay. I think there is uh, one question over here, and then maybe one more question, and we'll wrap it up. Okay. So I think, I think it's actually, uh, at this point, it's pretty unrealistic for us to think about servicing that archive asset directly, because it often ends up in a, it's often in a, in a state that we wouldn't want to necessarily make, and I don't mean it's in a bad state, I just mean it's not really in a usable state from a, uh, you know, for a third party. Having a stack, a, a, you know, a two terabyte, three terabyte, five terabyte, 100 terabyte stack of open EXR images that I send to a downstream uh, recipient is, is not particularly usable, but uh, the expectation is essentially that we that we will we'll monetize that stuff by you know, but we'll have to condition it before it gets used. Does that answer the question? No, for a broadcaster, they might take a slightly different view of that. Or, or do you have plans to directly uh, kind of repurpose assets, or, or do you have new business models in mind for for? So for us, because we store in the format that uh, is for broadcast purpose and for OTT service, basically we just pull straight out from the archive and then create a mezzanine file on the fly to, to supply either to our, uh, for viewing through our OTT applications or through our uh, video on demand service that we offer through our connected set-top box. So basically we are assessing content directly. Um, at the moment, not yet. So at the moment, this is only catering for content that's ready for the pay TV business. Yeah. I think it's still a process that we are going through, and there are still pocket of areas that we have not really uh, finalized how do we put it into the archive. All right, last question, because we're out of time. Okay. Over here. I, I think yeah. it's my, my mind. We have more questions for Ai Chong. Um, so we're a systems integrator and managed service provider. We have several broadcasters with customers, and some of them have concerns about working with um, Amazon, as Amazon also is operating Amazon Prime, uh, which is competing for the same eyeballs. So is that playing some kind of role in your relationship with, with Amazon? Um, there, obviously, there's some concern, but it's not such a big concern at the moment. And like what I mentioned earlier, we we focus a lot in originating our own local content, 
and that's an area that I think someone like Amazon or Netflix may not necessarily be focusing, especially in our region yet. And, and, and at the end, I think you need to work with someone, right? Whether it's Amazon or someone else, potentially either you could have your own direct broadcast or media related service, or someone else could be hosting other competitors yeah. as well. All right, uh, so we're out of time. We'll take more questions when we step down from the stage, but I want to give these guys a hand, so thanks for coming. <laughs> Great to have you on, Trey. Bye -bye.